Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today on the show, we're talking about the need for a broad movement to address climate change in the wake of COP27, how Elon Musk's shenanigans with Twitter are actually as old as capitalist media monopolies themselves, and it's Tuesday, so it's time for our weekly tech segment, Tech for the People, and later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you, but before we can move on... You know, there are frequently questions about the level of solidarity among the white working class and poor toward the black working class and poor and whether a true workers movement is possible in this country, considering how prevalent and persistent racism is in crushing a unified, multiracial, multiethnic working class struggle. And I admit that this question has caused me a bit of pessimism, and it's caused me to uh, feel a little bit down about this issue from time to time, leading me sometimes to believe that racist attitudes of working class and poor white people will always take precedence over their natural solidarity with their black counterparts. But then my faith in our ability to build that multiracial, multiethnic working class movement is renewed as I learned how there were plenty of times that white workers not only stood side by side in struggle with black workers against the boss's exploitation of all of them, all of them, but many of those white proletariat soldiers gave their lives for that struggle. One such example is the Bogalusa labor massacre, which happened on November 22nd in 1919 when agents of the Great Southern Lumber Company formed a gang to threaten African-American labor organizer Saul Dacus, who was trying to unionize black workers at the Great Southern Sawmill. The veterans of the Civil Rights Movement website notes that, quote, Great Southern owned everything, houses, stores, electricity, utility, schools, even the segregated parks. They also ran the government. The mill's general manager was the mayor, and the police department took their orders from the company. In addition to the cops, Great Southern maintained a private armed security force to maintain, quote-unquote, labor discipline. In 1919, after World War I, white and black soldiers tried to form a biracial union with segregated locals, as required by Louisiana law, The company organized racist whites into the Self-Preservation and Loyalty League, or the SPLL. These company gunmen uh, and other members of the SPLL assaulted union members, evicted them from their company housing, burned private homes, kidnapped, and tortured organizers. But what's important to note is that not all the white employees of the sawmill went along with the company's racist divide-and-conquer tactics. The Zen Education Project explains that the SPLL tried to kill Dorcas on the night of November 21st when they showed up at his home and shot up the place. Dorcas and his family escaped, and the next day, he marched through town accompanied by several armed allies, including J.P. Bouchillon and Stanley O'Rourke, two white unionists who had volunteered to go with Dorcas to union headquarters. The bosses at the Great Southern Lumber Company were so incensed at the solidarity shown between white and black workers that their SPLL thugs 
murdered four of those white allies. Saul Dacus and his family were able to escape once again and went this time to New Orleans. The Internationalist, the newspaper of the League for the Fourth International, notes that the struggle at Bogalusa took place against the backdrop of a long history of attempts at interracial working class solidarity in Louisiana, ranging from the Knights of Labor in the sugar fields and sawmills to New Orleans longshoremen. The efforts by the Knights of Labor were essentially drowned in blood such as in the Thibodeau Massacre of November 1887, in which as many as 300 striking black sugar plantation workers are estimated to have been killed. But the Brotherhood of Timber Workers, or the BTW, launched a new wave of class struggle in the lumber industry of western Louisiana and Texas in 1911 through 1913. The BTW was a segregated labor union since that was mandated by Jim Crow laws in Louisiana, but Big Bill Haywood from the Industrial Workers of the World attended a BTW gathering in May of 1912 and was surprised to not see any black faces in the meeting. And he was told they were all sitting in another room. Haywood said, quote, you work in the same mills together. Sometimes a black man and a white man chop down the same tree together. You're meeting in convention now to discuss the conditions under which you labor. This can't be done intelligently by passing resolutions here and then sending them out to another room for the black man to act upon. Why not be sensible about this and call the Negroes into this convention? If it is against the law, this is one time when the law should be broken. So black workers joined the assembly, which also voted that the BTW affiliate to the IWW. The response to this interracial labor organizing was crushing violence from the bosses across the state. The lumber companies Burns and Pinkerton gun thugs, supplemented by middle class vigilantes, raided union meetings, whipped BTW members and expelled union members and their families from their homes. There were shootouts committed by the private army of the Galloway Lumber Company against BTW members. Then the American Lumber Company fired a number of white unionists. And when black workers struck in solidarity, they were all driven out of town. The bosses also claimed that the organizing drive was financed by Moscow. This was back in 1919, y'all. So this Red Scare business, it's not new. And of course, bosses tried to whip up racial resentment among white workers by circulating a photo of an IUTW meeting in Mississippi in which whites and blacks, including Dawkins, could be seen together alleging race mixing in hopes that white workers' commitment to the struggle would end. While the AFL unions did not challenge any aspect of Jim Crow and finally offered not to organize black workers if the companies promised not to use them as scabs, the AFL also demanded equal wages for white and black workers and ultimately went all in to the limit in defending their black co-workers. The struggles in Bogalusa inspired others around the world, too. The Messenger, a black socialist review based in New York City, publicized the case, underlining the potential for united class struggle and may have influenced Lovett Fort Whiteman and Grace Campbell of the publication to be among the first black communists. In Cuba, Carlos 
Balinho, a founding member of the Communist Party there, picked up on the messenger report to talk about Bogalusa as an example in their journal Espartaco. By the early 1930s, the U.S. Communist Party was the only group still recalling the Bogalusa massacre as it launched an audacious interracial organizing drive in the Deep South, which defied Jim Crow. If interracial, multi-ethnic, working-class solidarity weren't such an effective weapon against capitalism, the capitalists wouldn't have done so much to stop it. So we need to continue to recall the Bogalusa example to finally defeat the bosses that are continuing to divide and exploit us all, because that is the only way we will win. Follow Lukman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. As they say, I'm happy to be joined by Tina Landis, organizer and author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, to talk about COP27 and the need for a broad movement for climate justice. Tina, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Really glad that you could join to talk about this. You wrote a piece for uh, Liberation, the newspaper of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, uh, that's entitled COP27 and the Need for a Broad Movement for Climate Justice. And, uh, you know, the piece was focused very much on the way that the world leaders who participated in COP27 have really skirted the issues that are uh, affecting working class and poor people, particularly in the global south. So I'm wondering if you can give us a broad overview of what happened at COP27 that really seems to be a cop-out of world leaders in actually addressing climate change issues that are actually already affecting people who are working class, poor, colonized folks in the global south and even in the United States right now. Yeah, so the big sticking point at COP27 was the loss and damage fund, which actually the Global South has been pushing for since the very first Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. Um, because of the disparity of wealth that you see around the globe due to the legacy of colonialism and ongoing imperialism that's left you know, a large portion of the globe underdeveloped um, and really unable to recover once, when they get hit by these ongoing climate disasters, so that was a big negotiating point. And, you know, Europe and the EU, the UK and, and U.S. have been the, the long-standing holdouts, um, refusing to sign on to anything about loss and damage because they are afraid they'll be held liable um, for all these disasters happening moving forward, which they really should be because Europe and the UK and the U.S. are responsible for the largest emissions per capita today, as well as the largest share of historic emissions that have caused climate change, right? So really, they should be held accountable. And at the very last minute, the U.S. finally conceded to this agreement. But, you know, many are very skeptical, including myself, because now moving forward, the next step is a 24-country um, committee is tasked with setting up this fund and determining who will pay into the fund and who will receive the money, right? So there's a lot of wiggle room for, you know, <laughs> the, the imperialists to still get out of really paying their fair share, right? 
Um, and one of the points that U.S. was pushing back against is, <clears throat> um, and Europe as well, was that China should be considered a developed country, which is just a very false um, argument. You know, China just in 2021 finally uplifted 850 million people out of extreme poverty. 850 million, that's twice, over twice the population of the U.S. itself. Um, so they're not on the same playing field as Europe and the U.S., the imperialist countries who have plundered the planet for centuries. Um, they don't have the wealth at hand that, you know, these wealthy countries do, and they're still coming out of underdevelopment. So they should not be considered a developed country. So that was something that that's going to be a continued struggle, I'm sure, with imperialists pushing for, for the inclusion of, of China um, as being considered developed. But, yeah, I mean, how can you what Lula said in his speech at, um, at COP27, which was very true, is that you can't address you can't solve climate change without addressing poverty, essentially, um, because how can how can countries of the global south shift to renewable energy and, and the latest technologies to reduce emissions when they're still bringing their populations out of poverty. Some countries are still electrifying the more remote portions of their countries. You know, like I said, every disaster that strikes, they just struggle to feed their populations and, and recover, recover and build, rebuild the infrastructure. And they can't also at the same time be developing on the same level as the global North. Right. So it is a really important discussion. And, you know, we'll like I said, we'll see where it actually goes. But but that was a big sticking point. It's telling that people are mistrustful of the agreements that the U.S. and European nations have made in uh, in in this uh, climate financing or the loss and damage fund issue uh, because you know their reputation is not so great. Uh, there's not a whole lot that people have been able to trust these countries uh, to do in regard to taking care of working class and poor people in their own countries and certainly not uh, trusting them to do much about uh, the damage they've done to working class, poor and colonized communities, uh, communities around the world. And there's also uh, disappointment in language that was included that relate to uh, phasing down or phasing out fossil fuels. What was said uh, in the final agreement that came out of COP27 about fossil fuels and why is it so problematic? Yeah, so first of all, this is shocking if, for folks who don't know, but the inclusion of the word fossil fuels was never in any climate agreement coming out of these summits until last year in Copenhagen or in, in Glasgow. I'm sorry. So it's, it's really shocking how you can have a climate summit and not actually have fossil fuels in the agreement. Um, and that's that's really reflective of, you know, the imperialists wanting to continue production of fossil fuels. The U.S. military could not operate without fossil fuels, as well as every year there's hundreds of lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry who are allowed to attend these conferences, right? It's insane. There's over, there were over 600 this year, which is a record number, actually. So it really does, you know, twist the narrative of these, of these discussions and what comes out from them. Um, but, yeah, so the, the final language, you know, folks were hoping that it would, there would be language that says phase down or actually phase out fossil fuels. But in the end, it ended up being efforts toward the phase down of unabated coal power and the phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, that's so weak. That's such weak language, right? So 
some subsidies are okay, I guess. And, you know, unabated coal power, which means, I suppose, not without carbon capture mechanisms and emissions controls on them. But it's really very, very weak. Um, and, you know, you can, it's like there should be language that says the imperialist countries should immediately end fossil fuel use, right? Because they have the technology to do so. And then, like this climate financing, which was another sticking point that was, you know, this was agreed upon in the Paris Agreement in 2015 was that the global North countries, the wealthy countries would pay $100 billion annually to the most vulnerable countries. And they have yet to do so. They paid a few pittance, you know, a billion here, a billion there, but it's not enough. And that, that fund was supposed to go to, you know, for countries to develop renewable energy and technologies and things like that to, to mitigate emissions, to, to cut emissions from fossil fuels and to move to renewables. But that failed to happen, right? So, so yeah, we, we're, it's like they keep going in circles and it's really, I mean, this speaks to the title of my article, right? It's like we can't look to these summits, these conferences to, to lead the way, right? It, it's up to the people because we can see time and again, <laughs> our so-called leaders completely fail us. And we're every year getting closer and closer to this tipping point where we're, you know, we're going to have an uninhabitable planet. So it's really up to the people mobilizing in our communities, organizing ourselves, you know, making changes in our local areas and, and pushing for real climate action. And also bringing the awareness to others that the capitalism, the, the very system that, you know, is, is organizing these conferences, um, capitalism itself is the root cause of climate change and can never be the solution. Because what they try to do is, you know, just tweak it around the edges and like, you know, have some incentives for corporations to emit less pollution and, you know, shift to renewables, but it's, it's not enough. We're, we're, we're way past that point. We need rapid transformations of society. And what I want to point out a quote from um, the, the UN environmental, um, the UN environmental program director. She said, only a root and branch transformation of our economies and societies can save us from accelerating climate disasters. This is someone from the UN, right? I mean, that really speaks to, we need a socialist transformation of society. We need to change the economic system, the social system that we live under so that we can actually solve it because we can actually solve it, right? We have the tools, we have the knowledge, we know what needs to happen, but it requires getting corporations out of the way, getting, you know, getting rid of the profit motive. We, we can't profit and also... <laughs> save our save the planet at the same time right we need we need to transform how we function as a society yeah that definitely sounds like she was talking about socialism to me but there was one there was one leader world leader at uh uh the conference who was actually kind of a hero, and you point this out in your article, and it was Lula. And the plans that he has announced for not just his country, but also uh, in collaboration with uh, other countries in the global south, really provide a lot of promise uh, for actually addressing problems that have been exacerbated um, in the previous right-wing administration in uh, Brazil, uh, but also really focuses on the need to uh, center uh, indigenous and working class and poor people in those communities to confront these issues of climate change. What were the things that Lula said that were so uh, promising and, you know, groundbreaking for this conference? 
Yeah, so he's actually not even going to be officially in office until January, but he's already, you know, doing all this work to, to move the country in a, in a more environmental direction and a less direction um, to really help the people as well. But, yeah, so he's, he's proposed this alliance, a south-to-south alliance um, throughout Latin America, all the countries that share Amazonia, and other countries, Colombia has already said they're on board. Bolivia will definitely be on board. I mean, there's been a recent leftward shift in Latin American governments. I mean, pretty much all the governments are now led by by left um, leaders, which is a great promising, you know, they can actually make changes that way, right? Um, They're not under the boot of imperialism as much. So, So, yeah, that will be huge because, you know, if deforestation is a huge factor in climate change, right? It, you know, trees make rain, trees cool the climate, they sequester carbon from the atmosphere, which cools the climate. Um, biodiversity is a key climate stabilizer. So protecting the rainforest, restoring the rainforest are so crucial. And he also, at the same time as the COP27 um, conference was going on, there was a G20 meeting in Bali. And at that meeting, um, Lula signed a pact with Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of Congo to protect because they're the three countries with the largest remaining rainforest to protect their rainforests and find funding mechanisms to, to halt deforestation. So that's also a huge, a huge step forward. And Lula has plans to set up a, a ministry of indigenous people, which, which will protect indigenous rights, will protect indigenous land management, which is key <laughs> to, um, you know, protecting the forest and protecting biodiversity. And he also has plans to, you know, strengthen and resurrect all the regulations and enforcement and protections on the rainforest that the right-wing President Bolsonaro undid when he came into office, um, as well as he also wants to, um, he proposed hosting COP30 in 2025 in Brazil, which will be significant because that will, you know, having having in a country that's that's really pushing for environmental protections and, and the issue of deforestation will be key and will really set the tone for the negotiations of that, of that meeting. So, so these are all really great steps forward. Um, it really gave, yeah, like you said, he was the hero of COP27 because there was so little coming out of that meeting that was promising. And, and really, you know, this leftward shift in the South, um, in South America, and these alliances, South to South alliances that are happening are really, you know, outside of the imperialist control to some degree and, and are really a great step forward and, and can really show people, you know, what can happen when you have a progressive government, which will, you know, hopefully inspire people here in the U.S. to fight for more progressive um, climate action from our government, which is, you know, there's really little to nothing happening. So, yeah, it was, it was, a, very, it was a very good point in, in COP27. Yeah, and what I'm always interested to hear about with these uh, international conferences are the responses of the people in the streets. What was it like? Uh, were there protests, people's protests at this summit? Uh, what did they look like? What were people demanding? What kind of energy was there in the streets outside of the conference? Yeah, so, yeah, generally at these COP meetings, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the streets outside voicing their opinion, pressuring these leaders to, to take action. Um, generally, you know, a big, a big theme are, are often, you know, we need systemic change to solve this. 
But unfortunately, this meeting was held in Egypt, which has a very repressive government and, and outlaws protesting. So the Egyptian government had set up this protest zone far away from the conference itself in the middle of the desert where you could legally protest, um, which really defeats the purpose of protesting when no one could see you. Um, there were a few very small protests within the, the conference grounds um, itself that were organized by actual participants in the conference, but it was very limited. So that was unfortunate, and next year it's going to be held in Dubai, which will be a similar situation. Also don't allow protests in that country, so um, it's unfortunate because that is a big it's always a big part of it, right? It's, like I said, the masses being able to, who, who can't afford the conference prices and all that, to actually voice their opinions and, and get, get heard and seen in the media and, you know, pressure, pressure these leaders. Um, so that, that was unfortunate, but hopefully, you know, at other, there'll be other actions around the, the globe, you know, not just around the conferences, but just ongoing, ongoing mass actions for climate justice. That's what we need. We need to keep building in our communities and, and really broaden. We need to broaden the movement. Right now, you know, the movement is often very, very much led by NGOs that are that work around the environment. It needs to be everyone's issue, right? It needs to be unions there. They need to be, you know, teachers, healthcare workers, because it affects us all, right? It affects every aspect of society, and we all need to, you know, broaden this movement and, and make it class conscious and, and recognize that we really need a socialist transformation of society to, to solve it. Yeah, and that was actually going to be my next question. But, you know, this issue of uh, international solidarity in particular, I feel like is so incredibly important to uh, doing exactly what you just said, broadening this movement. So how do you see us going about achieving that level of international solidarity that we need to connect all of these impacted communities around the world uh, that are already feeling the effects of climate change so that we can all, uh, you know, create a united front to confront these leaders uh, to do a lot more than they're doing, which is really nothing other than enriching, uh, enriching themselves. Yeah, we can't we can't let the capitalist uh, media and the cap our, our imperialist leaders divi- continue to divide us across borders. I mean, if we have any hope of solving the climate crisis, we need to unite across borders. We need to cooperate globally. We need to share resources. We need to share in the struggles that we face, right, of, of the ongoing unraveling climate. And, and not be like pointing, you know, the, the U.S. media loves to point the finger at other countries for the problem, like India or China or Iran or, you know, any country that, that's their latest target, right? Yet, yet the U.S. government is the most culpable for the problem. You know, they're the most responsible uh, for for getting us into the situation in the first place. So, yeah, we, we shouldn't be duped by the media into thinking that it's someone else's problem or someone else's fault um, and really align with each other across borders. Because, you know, what's happening to poor communities in the Gulf Coast getting pummeled by hurricanes every year is it, re, they have more in common with the people of Pakistan who are, who are, you know, struggling with monsoon floods every year. You know, it's it's... We have nothing to gain from allying and and with our with our so-called leaders. We really we really need to ally with the workers around the world because we are we are the on the same page, right? We are in the same struggle. 
That is absolutely true. But we're out of time for this segment. I want to thank Tina Landis so much for joining me. But we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how Elon Musk's shenanigans with Twitter are really as old as capitalist media monopolies themselves. And I'm happy to be joined by Ari Paul, contributing writer to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Ari, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Fantastic that you're joining us to talk about Elon Musk. And, as you know, usually I wouldn't want to give a whole lot of uh, uh, airtime to this guy because he is kind of annoying, even though he is, you know, America's favorite apartheid American. But he is acting as, you know, a bull in Twitter's China shop, I suppose, seeming to kind of wreck the place. But honestly, as you point out in your piece, uh, in Fair, the fact that his money is playing old games with new media. So, you know, give us uh, an, uh, some insight into how what he's doing with Twitter since he's bought the platform. Really, it's not shocking and it's not even new. Yeah, uh, the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk, who's the world's richest human at this point, um, is really sort of a, 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 um, a version of new media uh, corporate control um, that's actually quite common in uh, forms of old media. It's always been um, the in, in the interests of uh, corporate power and moguls to buy media, either to use them as, a pla- as, a, as their own political platforms or to sort of consolidate and homogenize media so that they become more friendly, they become uh, less worker, you know, they, they take on, um, you know, less of a watchdog role against, uh, you know, corporate control or, uh, or corporate governance. So, you know, some examples of this is the homogenization of, uh, of American radio by uh, what was formerly known as Clear Channel, now called iHeartRadio. Um, that not only homogenized um, news and uh, political radio, but also skewed them to the right. A uh, similar thing happens uh, in television, the Sinclair Broadcast Group, uh, Sinclair Broadcast Group, which uh, operates uh, almost 200 local television stations, is veered uh, strongly to the right. And another example is uh, second and third tier newspaper markets, where um, hedge funds have bought a lot of those chains, uh, sort of turning these papers into really just advertising sheets and uh, full of wire copy that don't really act as a, a counterbalance of corporate and government power. So um, with Musk buying Twitter and what you know what what he does with it remains to be seen. Will it become just this giant platform full of far right extremists? Will people disengage with it? Will it become less influential? All any of those outcomes sort of furthers that goal of either reducing, uh, you know, uh, the robustness of media or making it a platform for a political view that he he has preference for. Yeah, and you know, in case people don't remember uh, the kind of influence that that uh, say a Clear Channel has and used to or has had, um, and. Uh, 
if people don't know that they're now called iHeartRadio, that's what Clear Channel uh, has morphed into. They've grown from 40 stations to 1,240 stations, which is 30 times more than the congressional regulation previously allowed. And they were influential in silencing the Dixie Chicks uh, back in 2003, I think it was, for their anti-war stance. Refresh people's memories about uh, that whole controversy and how just effectively this uh, musical group was basically wiped off the the radio station uh, map in this country. Yeah, it's sort of interesting now to hear a lot of the right Fox News complain about wokeness and cancel culture on Twitter or in other forms of media, when in fact there's always been a great amount of cancel culture against the left uh, in, t- in these types of media that, that, as you say, were sort of a result of corporate con- um, you know, monopolization. Uh, the Dixie Chicks, as I remember, were a, you know, were a kind of a country music band who had voiced an, an anti-war stance at the time of um, the run-up to the uh, invasion of Iraq. And the then called Clear Channel, had sort of put a ban on them as sort of punishment for them taking such an anti, uh, or, you know, such a critical stance against the uh, George W. Bush administration. Uh, uh, previously, uh, right after 9-11, uh, Clear Channel, I believe it was Clear Channel, had given a uh, directive to not play certain music that could be deemed you know, offensive in the in the aftermath of, of, of 9-11, uh, which, of course, you know, you know, one could could argue whether you know, whether or not these were good you know good things politically um, one way or the other, um, but sort of speak to the free speech for me, but not for the attitude of a lot of the corporate right. They felt that uh, for the right, uh, Clear Channel going in this direction uh, <clears throat> back during the Bush administration, uh, the W Bush administration, was a good thing. But now they're complaining that, uh, you know, Donald Trump gets taken off of Twitter because he violated uh, X, Y and Z rules. Um, Certain other uh, conservative activists and groups were taken off Twitter and they view that as a form of cancel culture. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's always been a great deal of cancel culture um, in corporate media. And this issue with the uh, Dixie Chicks was one of them. Yeah, and this uh, kind of mogul behavior in uh, gobbling up uh, smaller companies in their market and controlling, monopolizing the market, uh, while they're also uh, end up shedding content and just eviscerating these companies. We've also seen this in print media as well. What has that looked like over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's something that doesn't really affect the, the sort of the top tier of the market, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journals. Um, but what has happened in these sort of secondary and third markets, uh, places like, for example, McClatchy, um, which, you know, you know, historically has done wonderful reporting um, in the past, but with the decline of the newspaper industry, allowed them to be purchased by an, as- by an asset management hedge fund. Um, and that led to consolidation, the outsourcing of some of its work. A similar thing had happened at Tribune. Uh, Tribune, uh, you know, had been taken over by Wall Street investors that involved uh, um, selling off some of the remaining assets. And uh, what ends up happening to a lot of these papers is they either shutter, they consolidate, or they lay off staff. And instead of having original content um, that hold local governments accountable, they're just sort of running wire copy, or you have um, you know, a very few reporters doing too much work, so they're not able to really hold people accountable in their communities. So, what ends up happening is that these asset companies that that hold these second and third tier 
uh, newspaper companies, <clears throat> they reap the profit, but there's less and less content out there. And these are the markets that really need more media, not less of it. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot said about, you know, what uh, Elon Musk is actually doing. You know, people are talking about he's, you know, they're, they're glad that he's reducing spending at Twitter. But then people are, are you know, accurately and rightly pointing out the hundreds, if not thousands of people who have voluntarily left or who he has Fired. They're saying that Musk is a free speech champion, you know, that's trying to end big tech cen- uh, censorship or that, you know, the advertisers that are boycotting Twitter now that he has bought it were signs of, you know, this liberal conspiracy to enforce online wokeness. And, you know, they're they're talking about, uh, you know, how. The supporting him because he's, you know, an anti union type of guy, some folks. But. Really, I think under all of that uh, uh, commentary with people trying to figure out what it is that Musk is doing with Twitter, I think under and behind all of that, Ari, is that just like all moguls, Musk is using his money to advance an agenda. So what does that look like for Twitter and what has it looked like for other kinds of uh, media apparatuses? Yeah, I mean, I think that's correct. I think a lot of that, um, the the commentary in the right-wing media about, you know, uh, he's a free speech champion or he's cutting costs. I mean, I think this is all sort of fluff. I think they're, they're just celebrating the fact that uh, a very rich mogul who shares their politics is in control of a giant social media network. Um, and I think they hope that this will mean that it will become friendlier for for the far right that or for you know for you know, right wing accounts or that it will be that its politics will or its policies will favor right wing accounts or something like that. Um, and I think that's always been uh, something that's happened in media. For example, uh, we you know we don't mention this in the piece, but I think a good comparison would be say uh, the Murdoch takeover of the New York Post back before Rupert Murdoch took over the New York Post. Uh, it was sort of a scrappy working class urban newspaper that taught you know, that it really covered the nitty gritty of municipal politics and culture in New York City. And it was considered a good, accessible tabloid. After Murdoch acquired it, it is sort of it driven off into a very sensational uh, direction, a very right wing direction with its editorial board and especially its news coverage. And unfortunately, that has a huge influence on city politics in New York City because it doesn't really have a lot of other competition. The New York Daily News is a much is a much uh, is in a much diminished form. The New York Times, while a very influential paper on the national and international level, doesn't hold as much sway in municipal coverage in the same way that the Post does. So, th- so Murdoch's been able to advance a right wing agenda through the control of this particular media organ. I think there is a hope that he may, that uh, someone like Elon Musk might do the same thing with. Twitter. I think it's a little early to understand what that's going to look like or what or or how much success he might have with that. It's quite possible that people will drift into other uh, other social networks, um, that the uh, network might not be as usable as it once was. I think it's a little too early to tell, but I think their hope really is to replicate something uh, like what Murdoch has done with the uh, New York Post or even what uh, the late uh, Shelley Adelson did with the Las Vegas Review Journal, I believe it's called, that he purchased it um, for well more than it's worth, but really to uh, use it as a right-wing organ in the Las Vegas media market. Yeah, definitely. I remember how Adelson, uh, who was uh, 
very conservative and a Zionist and un unapologetic uh, Zionists uh, set up a free Israeli newspaper, and you point this out in your piece, uh, Israel Hayom, that until recently served as an unofficial mouthpiece for Benjamin Netanyahu. And you, you also point out in your piece, uh, Ari, that, you know, Musk's accusation of Twitter seems like a new chapter in history, but his choice to either skew Twitter to be friendly to the right, as his right-wing cheerleaders believe he's doing, or to run the company into the ground is only the latest episode of moneyed interests pillaging our communications infrastructure for financing or ideological gain. Why do you think there has never been an effort on the so-called left, on, you know, from Democrats to take over uh, media outlets the way uh, conservatives have and, and people on the uh, far right seem to have been able to do with uh, much better success? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I know there have been certain policy proposals around the left. I know there's this, uh, in, you know, Senator Liz Warren, uh, has talked about breaking up tech monopolies. I know there's sort of calls to to consider that to to say that these social media networks are for better or for worse the public square uh, and therefore should be treated more like a public utility. And there's a certain um, historical understanding for that. We would con- you know, we would consider things like the phone network or or electricity or, or or all these things are sort of should be treated like public utilities. So why shouldn't the internet be treated like a public utility? Uh, and for that matter, things like email and social uh, media networks. So I think there are those ideas out there. I just don't know that there is a particular there's a there's real movement within the Democratic Party at least to to really pursue that. Now part of that might have to do with the fact that. There's uh, historically quite, you know, the big tech companies um, are, you know, are big contributors to Democrats as well as, you know, some Republicans. I believe there's actually been an increase in Republican donations from big tech. Uh, I believe there's a lot of hesitancy by the Silicon Valley community to not have more government intrusion. And so that that then they have a lot of influence in American politics. I think the ideas are are out there. I just don't think there's a there's a, a push at the national level to uh, use the levers of power to you know try to make these things freer or or to to get them out of corporate control. But just the the right has been a very very um, you know united in that this is a big uh, priority for them out-organized by the right once again in the corporate uh, monopoly takeover of uh, communications networks and even social media. Well, we're out of time for this segment. I want to thank Ari Paul so much for joining me. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. Well, it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Jackie, it's great to be back. Thank you. 
It is great to have you back to talk about yet another horror story in uh, technology and weapons development that is being unleashed upon oppressed people. As uh, there's a story that says that uh, uh, ABC News is reporting that Israel has deployed remote controlled robotic guns in the West Bank. And I... You know, just when you think that uh, state repression in Israel cannot get any worse, this kind of thing comes out. So tell us what's going on with these uh, remote control guns. Uh, where are they and uh, what, what's the backstory uh, uh, to this mess? Yeah, this is just an absolutely disgusting development out of Israel. Unfortunately, it is not shocking at all given how much Israel uses high-tech uh, devices and means, you know, in its oppression of the Palestinian people. But these are remote-controlled, AI-powered guns, literal guns. Uh, they say they're going to be using non-lethal weapons or non-lethal projectiles, so tear gas, stun grenades, and uh, sponge-tip bullets, they say. But, of course, those are lethal. They can be and often are extremely lethal um, you know, for people who get hit by them. So this whole language of non, you know, non-lethal, uh, you know, projectiles is nonsense. Uh, but they've installed it uh, in a couple spots in the West Bank uh, and also in Hebron. And the the way the ABC article describes this, I just have to read this. About a month ago, the military also placed the robots in the nearby city of Hebron, where soldiers often clash with stone-throwing Palestinian residents. So you're literally talking about people throwing stones at Israeli occupiers being met with the with AI powered robots shooting at them. This is the just the one sidedness of the conflict and how technology is being used as part of that conflict. Now, these so there's no one, no guard sitting next to these these guns. They are controlled remotely. And they can be trained on a person and follow them. And that's part of where the, the artificial intelligence training comes in. Um, and then they can fire at that person to you know, uh, immobilize or straight up just kill them, which, again, some of these, even though they're calling them non-lethal projectiles, they can still be extremely deadly. But they can also maim and injure people. And we know that it's also very difficult to actually get to you know, a hospital or get to decent medical care if you're in occupied Palestine. This is just another step that Israel is taking in terms of its use of technology uh, in the occupation. The other thing that should be really concerning here is that the this, a lot of technology that Israel uses uh, to oppress Palestinians, especially for surveillance, often comes to the U.S. on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, companies like Elbit have built surveillance devices that have been used, um, you know, to uh, have been used in Palestine by Israel, and then come and they try to sell them to the U.S. government or to states to actually use at the border to monitor people who are coming, you know, who are uh, attempting to enter the United States, uh, which is already an extremely difficult and dangerous and often deadly journey to, to try to make. So this is not just something, and it's bad enough, of course, that it's, hap- you know, it's being used against Palestinians, but it's not, we shouldn't assume this isn't going to happen here, because it certainly can and likely will be something that is used here, unless we stand up and we say something and we say, stop 
Stop providing money to Israel to build this technology and don't ever let that be exported to any, you know, anywhere else. Yeah. And, you know, the gun turrets uh, were built actually by Smart Shooter. And that company sounds really familiar. Why does that company name sound really familiar to me, Chris? You know, there have been a number of products that Smart Shooter has built. And I believe we've, we've talked about some of them even on this show. They make something called, I, I think, their language is fire control systems. They um, actually quoting them. They significantly increase the accuracy, lethality, and situational awareness of small arms. Basically, they, like so many companies, big and small, exist in order to make occupation forces and militaries more deadly. Um, you know, this is a, a smaller company, but, you know, they work with the U.S. Army, with the IDF, and uh, they say dozens of militaries around the world. They actually say they boast contra- contracts with, million, uh, with dozens of militaries around the world. At the same time, you know, the, we have large companies like Microsoft saying we want to build technology for the U.S. government at an even larger scale to increase its lethality. Yeah. And, you know, this uh, automated gun turret business, it's not uh, they, they say they're using non-lethal uh, arms. But as you point out, no, the, 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 the weaponry actually does uh, and can kill people. But it actually doesn't take the presence of soldiers of the IDF and their terrorism of the Palestinian people out of the equation. It just kind of enhances their ability to terrorize people even more, Chris. Right. I look at it, I think a a, a similar situation we can look at is the increase in use of, by the U.S. military, of drones in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, uh, and a number of other countries over the last you know decade and a half or so. And one of the key reasons that the U.S. government wanted to use drones, I mean, first of all, it's slightly less expensive. Second of all, it means fewer direct boots on the ground. And if there are fewer boots on the ground in a war, then the Pentagon believes that the people in the U.S. will be less likely to oppose that war because it won't be Americans dying. Uh, it'll be, you know, the other people, so to say, the targets of it. Um, and of course, that is not how we should be viewing and building an anti-war movement. But I think from what we've seen, there has been you know, a small amount of truth to that assessment. And that's why the anti-war movement is so critical to continue to build right now. So if you're not going to have, you know, IDF guards uh, on these guard towers next to these guns, if you're going to have them, you know, in some sort of command center somewhere in in Jerusalem or wherever they're going to be, it's the same, you know, removing that human as well, um, you know, who could potentially, you know, be a target for, you know, just retaliation from the people who are being attacked and oppressed. Yeah. And, you know, in a little bit of a pivot, we may not have uh, automated and remote controlled gun turrets in the U.S. yet. But we do have something called PIM Eyes, which is a face search engine, which is accused of surveillance and stalking on a scale previously unimaginable. Now, honestly, Chris, I didn't think that um, surveillance and, uh, you know, face uh, a recognition technology could get any more uh, pervasive than it is already and troubling. But apparently this PIM Eyes thing really goes there. So what's the concern with it? Yeah, I mean, PIM eyes, uh, just like if, if we remember, there was a lot of uh, issues with a company called Clearview AI. This is a su- somewhat similar. 
you know, it just basically it's a face search engine. You go on, you upload a photo or you point it to a photo and it uses facial recognition and says, here's other photos of this person uh, online. And, you know, they say that it's, oh, you're only supposed to use this to search for yourself to see, you know, other sites that you might be on. Who has your photo on their website? But they have no technical restrictions in place that have been reported um, to prevent you from just searching, you know, any photo you want. So you go and subscribe to this thing, and all of a sudden, you are able to go and just upload any photo and, you know, grab somebody's Facebook photo and then post them and see where else on the Internet are they. Have they been tagged in somebody's, uh, you know, Instagram post? That could be extremely dangerous. You know, it could expose them at work. It could expose them at the the places that they just regularly go to if they get caught, you know, a restaurant social media site, right? Um, you know, because they're in a picture there and then they get found. I looked into how to opt out to this. And there's, I got one and a half steps into it because I wasn't going to go any further. Because first you have to upload a picture of yourself so that they know what photo, you know, to remove. But then you have to scan your ID or passport and upload it to them in order to go through the process of removing yourself from their results. Now, they say, oh, please anonymize your scan of your ID or passports by, you know, blurring or blocking out the, you know, barcodes and license numbers and things like that. But the idea that you, to, to, to remove yourself from this search engine that is taking advantage of the fact that so many of us are online, have social media, our friends have social media and have posted us, they you actually have to upload your passport or your driver's license or other form of ID in order to remove it. I consider that that is not a removal process. That is just sending them more information about you. And we have no reason to believe that they're actually going to remove the information or that they're not going to store the photo and uh, ID information that you actually do send to them. It was outrageous to see that, to see that as part of their process. Yeah, you know, and as you said, there's no reason to trust this company that they're going to uh, not do anything nefarious with all of this additional identifying information that they're requiring uh, people to give them to opt out of the service. And, you know, in a little bit of a pivot, but, you know, there really is no reason for us to trust the U.S. government to do anything about broadband. I mean, they haven't so far, but there is still such a problem with broadband and it makes no sense. So what is the issue with broadband and why can't it be fixed in this country? Yeah, well, I mean, the issue, the reason it can't be fixed is capitalism. And, and this is why, uh, you know, the, the Verge and Consumer Reports did a study last year. They asked readers for their just a copy of their broadband bill so they could do some comparisons. Uh, they got 22,000 responses. Mine was one of those. I submitted mine to be part of this. Uh, it's an unscientific study. It's not a, they call it, it's a not a standard statistical survey um, because it just came from the readers. But I think it's actually very telling that broadband is very expensive. The majority of people paying somewhere between 50 and and $100 a month for broadband access, people still relying on satellite internet in rural areas, which can be very slow, it can be very unreliable, and imagine just not being able to connect to the internet. Um, but also one of the biggest things that is an issue is that people have no choice in terms of their carrier, 
And that's an issue while we have very little actual regulation about what broadband even means. Based on the vendors uh, that are based on the zip codes that were submitted, uh, most about half of people had only one choice for broadband Internet access. Um, few more had two and then a bunch, you know, very few people had, three, you know, three choices. Now, the issue isn't that, oh, we need more competition in the cable or DSL or satellite services. We need actually a national plan to get broadband to the entire country, just like we have electricity to pretty much the entire country now. Broadband should be a basic human right. Access to the Internet is effectively required to live. Uh, to get jobs, to stay in touch with people, to get news and alerts. So why don't we have this requirement that everyone and every community should be able to get online at decent speeds, at broadband speeds? The infrastructure is either there and not maintained, or it actually doesn't exist but could be built out, save for the fact that the existing companies, AT&T, Comcast, and others, wouldn't, don't feel like that they would make enough profit off of building it out. And that's the problem. It's a profit motive. There should not, not be profit involved in broadband access, just like there should not be profit involved in housing, in access to other utilities like water, electricity, and gas. That's the problem. That's why, you know, under capitalism, you know, this, we need to push to have this addressed. But ultimately, you know, capitalism cannot fix this, this issue. Absolutely, because capitalism ruins everything for human beings. But we're out of time for this segment. I want to thank Chris Garafa so much for joining me. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, friends, welcome back. It is Tuesday, November 22nd, the eve of Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and ask us anything about what you've heard on the show or anything at all that is on your mind. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C., of course, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We certainly do. We most certainly do. And I am happy to be joined 
before this hour by Kim Brown, veteran broadcaster, host of Burn It Down with Kim Brown on YouTube and co-host of Black Power Media's The Remix Morning Show. Kim, thank you so much for joining me. Jackie, it's an honor as always. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you on because, man, is there a lot of stuff going on in Baltimore or is it just me? What the heck is going on since the midterm elections? You've got a new prosecutor. Uh, There may be some movement on some, you know, cases that we've been watching for years. The Mosby's are having legal problems. I don't know where to start, but I think I do want to start with the uh, the case of the squeegee kids. There was a, we we had you on the show a, a while ago to talk about this case of a Baltimore citizen uh, attacking uh, one of the squeegee kids with a baseball bat. Hopped out of his car, decided he felt like he needed to attack these kids who would, you know, make extra money by uh, cleaning your windshield while you're stopped at the light. I guess this guy was really ticked off at it. Hopped out of his car with a baseball bat. He was shot uh, dead by, you know, for his um, (laughs) for his annoyance. And then the kid who was uh, really, as far as I'm concerned, defending himself from this person has been arrested. And I think they're going to trial for murder. So What's gone on since then in this case, Kim, and in uh, with the situation of the the squeegee kids in general? Because I just drove to Baltimore a couple of weeks ago, like two weeks ago, um, to go up to Johns Hopkins to meet with their kidney transplant team. And I noticed that there was nobody on the corners. There was nobody at the streetlights. And that has not been something I've seen in a while. And I have a feeling that that is a result of something the city is doing with focusing on uh, the squeegee kids as if their existence on the corners are the problem when the problem is really something that the city and most cities in this country never want to deal with and focus on, and that's capitalism. So, so what's going on with this situation? So let's start with the 15-year-old who has been accused of murdering a Baltimore motorist. And as you accurately recounted, Jackie, the Baltimore motorist parked his vehicle, crossed several lanes of traffic with a baseball bat in hand in order to confront these youth who um, uh, were, were doing what youths in Baltimore have been doing tragically for generations. And that's earning a legal living by cleaning people's windshields and basically living basically off of the generosity of of people who commute to and through the city. So what has happened lately is that Marilyn Mosby's office, Marilyn Mosby is the outgoing state attorney for Baltimore City. She lost the Democratic primary to Ivan Bates, who will be assuming that office in January. But Marilyn Mosby's office charged this 15-year-old, who was 14 at the time of the incident, charged him as an adult with first-degree murder. So a few days ago, there was a hearing at uh, the, the Juvenile Justice Division. They, uh, the, the child's attorneys were trying to get him charged as a juvenile, and apparently they had come to a plea agreement with the state's attorney's office, that the young man would plead guilty to manslaughter, but face it in a juvenile court and and serve out his sentence in juvenile facilities. 
Well, that was rejected by a Baltimore City judge. And the trial is going to move forward with, again, this 15-year-old, 15 years old, being charged as an adult with first-degree murder. And many in the community are outraged, number one, at the actions of this motorist. And while we, we, we mourn the loss of any life via gun violence, this person made a decision to go and physically confront strangers that they didn't know with a weapon. And, 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 I'm, and I, as much as I hate to say it, I mean, if you play stupid games, you will win stupid prizes. And for this child to be not charged or at least not have his self-defense considered, and again, we're going to see what this plays out in court. For, from the layperson perspective, from all of our perspectives, I can't see how this kid was doing anything but self-defense. And from what I understand, the way that the first-degree murder charges are being factored in is that allegedly the child went to retrieve the gun from a separate location, came back armed, and then shot the man who was already on the ground. I'm, I'm, I'm curious in, in, in the ways that prosecutors will lay this out. But this child is moving forward with this kid charged as an adult um, and charged with first-degree murder. And I think it's overcharging. I'm hoping that if this goes to a jury, that Baltimore City residents will recognize that the child was overcharged. And hopefully, more accountability will be placed on the onus of the city to make sure that these children are not placed in this position where their only means of earning a living is to go out and do squeegee work, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with squeegee work. And these children actually put capitalism to shame because capitalism is what impoverishes them in the first place. And they go out there and make a, a decent living. And then the system wants to punish them for being good at capitalism. <laughs> it, it, it's remarkable. But to your point about you're seeing fewer squeegee kids out on city corners, that is correct. Baltimore City Police have taken more of a proactive stance of, quote unquote, clearing the corners particularly the corners that are in proximity to Baltimore's Inner Harbor and downtown areas where most of the tourist activity usually happens. So they're trying to move the kids out of the downtown areas, basically out of sight, out of mind, and allegedly trying to come up with programs that will put money into these kids' hands. But it, the, the money that the city wants to give to these children, you, usually it pales in comparison to what the kids are actually able to earn whilst out there on the corner doing squeegee work. Yeah, you know, it's wild that the tip of the spear, so to speak, in uh, the city of Baltimore addressing the issue of, you know, the unsightly squeegee kids is police. It's it's not social services. It's not, you know, any employment services. It's not any uh, civilian uh, kind of, of agency. It's the cops. And I just got to say, that is so typically American capitalist uh, to to respond to a problem of the failure of capitalism to provide a safe uh, and 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 guaranteed income for a marginalized group of people in a city that really pretty much exists on tourism. 
so that instead of just making sure that these kids are actually safe out in the streets, because, I mean, there have been reports, Kim, have there not, of, you know, these kids being hit by cars. Uh, these uh, uh, There have been assaults on these kids before this uh, one happened. So this is not even a, a safe way to make a living all the time. But because these kids have become so good at it and, and they don't have any other options, in an exploitative capitalist system that's already excluded them from the so-called legitimate ways to make a living, now they get punished, as you said, by the cops because they're actually able to make a living, but they're unsightly and now they're a problem and they, and they need to be dealt with instead of they need to be rewarded for being honestly, and I think I agree with you, uh, Kim, for beating the capitalists at their own game. And on top of that, Jackie, When you look at Baltimore City, and Baltimore is Maryland's biggest city, Baltimore is and ought to be Maryland's gem, but Baltimore goes so badly neglected. And here in the state of Maryland, the state just elected, I know you're going to be excited about this, Jackie, so stay in your seat. (laughs) They just elected their first ever black governor. Now, celebrating, stop celebrating. His name is Wes Moore, and Wes Moore is a political unknown. But I'm concerned that Wes Moore, in these footsteps of both Republican and Democratic governors before him, will absolutely neglect the needs of Baltimore City. Baltimore continues to go neglected with its public school system, with its failing public transportation system, with its overinvestment in police and building new jails, et cetera. These are the things that Baltimore needs to address. And I'm hoping that Wes Moore, even though I doubt that he will, but I'm hoping that he will. But when we look at these kids, these kids understand that they are in failing schools. They understand that when they go to school, they can't even drink water out of the water fountain because of the lead pipe contamination. They understand that when the temperatures get to be too hot or too cold, for some reason, there's never money to invest in schools' HVAC systems to make sure that children and teachers and staff can comfortably be in a safe environment for learning and for teaching. But the kids also realize that, hey, the city has money for these school resource officers. There is absolutely a cop at every Baltimore City public school, but are there enough teachers? Are there enough books? Are there facilities? safe and up to standard? Absolutely not. So when these children make different decisions, and again, I don't have a problem with squeegee kids. I don't even have a problem with drug dealing, Jackie, to be perfectly honest. If, if, if it puts food on the table, people have to do what they have to do, but it is a symptom of the neglect and the um, just outright exploitation and intentional ignoring of poor people, of poor black people in Baltimore City and the, the state needs to do better and the city needs to do better because some of the elected leadership, um, even though Marilyn Mosby's on the way out, her husband still remains president of the Baltimore City Council. And he himself had to face an, an ethics hearing this week uh, for, for some of the things that he has allegedly done. So there, there's, there's a lot to get into. Yeah. You know, uh, for what it's worth, and I don't think it's worth a whole lot, but for what it's worth, um, outgoing uh, uh, Governor Hogan uh, said uh, of the Squeegee Collaborative's plan 
uh, to pay some of the squeegee workers. He said, that sounds completely absurd and ridiculous to me. We need crackdowns, not handouts. We need to get the people who are violating the law off the streets. He's talking about the squeegee kids. And that's what's be- what we've been saying for several years now. I'm not so sure what took so long, the many months for the squeegee collaborative to come up with any of this stuff that they came up with, like self-monitoring, and they're going to have designated areas and they're going to pay them. Hey, look, I'm not the mayor of Baltimore, but it's certainly not the way I'd go about handling it if I was. Well, here's the thing, though, Kim. Okay, fine. He's not the mayor of Baltimore, but he hasn't done anything to address the quote unquote problem of the the squeegee kids the entire time that he was governor either. So it's weird that he has all this smoke as he's leaving the governor's office for the squeegee collaborative. And and I'm not so sure that their plan is so great. I'm just saying Hogan has a lot of nerve having any kind of smoke for anybody coming up with a plan when what's his plan been to do anything better for these kids? Oh, his plan has just been more police, mm-hmm. more funding. And this was a very specific policy initiative set forth by Governor Hogan, refund the police. <laughs> he, he said that and meant that and put dollars behind that and chastised Marilyn Mosby for failing to prosecute smaller crimes, which is something that I actually agree with her office and that, that she did that. But on the flip side, she is still persecuting people um, w- without w- really good evidence. Obviously, I'm speaking specifically about Keith Davis Jr., um, her office is still doing very harmful things. And there's even some questions about some of the exonerations that she's done recently, um, wh- how, how grounded some of those were in in actual um, evidence. But for Hogan to make those comments to me is completely unsurprising. As I've said, Republican and Democratic governors alike have looked at Baltimore City with disdain. And, And starting back with Martin O'Malley, when he was mayor of Baltimore City, the broken windows policing initiative was his brainchild, or he borrowed that from from NYPD in the 90s and implemented it with vigor and force in Baltimore City, which inevitably spurred the Department of Justice consent decree that is on Baltimore City's police department. But it doesn't really do anything because the police still keep up with their unconstitutional practices, regardless of being under consent decree. So the money still continues to go to, to, to the police. It does not go to the community. The amount of money that they're offering to pay these squeaky workers, really pales in comparison to what they could be making on the street. I mean, these kids do earn a good living, and, and, it, and you're right that they do face dangers as a result of that. But what's more dangerous to them? You know, if, if they were out there selling drugs, they would need a gun on them also. They would need ways to protect themselves. And the violence spurred by the poverty in Baltimore as, as echoed by the 15-year-old squeegee kid, um, the, the one charged with murder, his attorney, Warren Brown, made the point that kids in Baltimore can get guns as easily as they can get cell phones, okay? So putting pr- prohibitions on where the squeegee workers can actually do their trade is not addressing the problem that these kids are facing. So when we continue to look at the historical and generational disinvestment in Baltimore City public schools. Also, 
speaking specifically about Governor Hogan, there was $1 billion available and approved in federal funds for Baltimore to build the Red Line, which would have been a public transportation initiative. There has not been any public transportation investment in Baltimore City in over 30 years. And the Red Line would have created a new light rail system to move workers across the city, move people across the city, and Larry Hogan rejected it. And that has put back Baltimore's economic progress, probably back another generation or two. Okay, so the kids see that the schools are not being invested in, their city's not being invested in, and they are out there having to survive for themselves with no help from the government. But the only help they will get from the government will be to help them into some handcuffs and help them into a jail cell if they go out there on the streets and do what they need to do to survive. That's capitalism for you. But we're going to move to the first break of the hour. We'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik here in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lupman, and I continue to be joined by my girl, Kim Brown. And Kim, I really want to dig into this Ivan Bates victory and what it means for uh, not just the Baltimore State's Attorney's Office, but for for Baltimore in particular and some of those cases that you mentioned uh, on the other side of the break. Because, you know, Bates's victory is kind of, of hailed as like a major departure from uh, uh, the way the Baltimore uh state's attorney's office has approached crime, even as Marilyn Mosby uh, ran in 2014 as a progressive prosecutor, that that uh, a trend that uh, got us people like Mosby and uh, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. And we see how useful they've been. But um, Bates has campaigned on uh, really distancing himself from Mosby by saying that he's going to restart prosecutions of low-level crimes, which Mosby halted during the pandemic, and that he's going to pursue jail time and all illegal gun possession cases. So, I mean, it's in a way, it sounds like a departure from the way Mosby uh, ran the state's attorney's office. However, Given the really poor performance of Mosby in regard to what has seemed to be uh, the fair adjudication of certain cases, I don't know what exactly we're expecting from a Bates um, uh, Baltimore attorney's office. What What is your take on this guy and, and what his uh, the way he, he could run the uh, state's attorney's office? could mean for some cases that we've been looking at? Well, I'm not too encouraged by the election of Ivan Bates, and I don't really think that voters picking him over Marilyn Mosby was necessarily a reflection of her job performance, even though I don't think that most Baltimore residents um, 
approved of of her job performance, but on but on the other hand, a lot did because there there's there's a lot of respectability in Baltimore, right? There's a lot of black respectability, and Marilyn Mosby and her husband Nick are 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 sort of the 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 representation of of what could be, right? Like you have these 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 younger black people, you know, made their way through their profession, and now look at them. One is state's attorney, married to the president of the city council. And that imagery um, resounds with some people, and some people are okay with that. But on the other hand, you have those in Baltimore who look at the Mosby's as a power couple, as a consolidation of too much power in the city. They both are, you know, some of the most powerful people politically in Baltimore, and a lot of people didn't like that. So I think the rejection of Marilyn Mosby was more so a rejection of, of her personality and maybe perhaps the, the image that, that she has set forth. Um, because Ivan Bates is, is police, right? Mm. She is police too. So he is going to resume doing things the way that they were done prior to Marilyn Mosby coming to office, which again, she wasn't outstanding, but the fact that she was lessening the the amount of low-level crimes being prosecuted by her office was a something. It wasn't, you know, totally nothing. So I'm concerned that we're going to see more increases in stop-and-frisk arrests, in people being detained, in targeting of, of kids in Baltimore, and to fill the jails with with jaywalkers or with low-level um, drug possession, or even the issue about gun possession, I think is a really critical one because the war on drugs seemed to pivot to the war on guns, and it is impossible to wage a successful war on guns in America as outlined by, I guess, the vision of, quote, getting the guns off the street. There are 400 million guns. There are more guns in this country than there are people. This pie-in-the-sky notion that we're going to somehow rid the streets of guns is just another reason to keep the spigots of the budget and the funding wide open for the cops because they have this goal that they will never achieve, right? So Ivan Bates is, is to me, he's going to be bad for Baltimore, possibly even worse than Marilyn Mosby because his, his answer is policing, his answer is jail. Um, and, and we know what jail does to people. It, it ruins their lives. It ruins their opportunities. It traumatizes them um, and, and, and makes them ill-equipped to come out into the world and, and do what society expects of them. Um, and, and But the money, that's where it goes, towards the jails and towards the police. And Ivan Bates is, is just going to do more of that. The war on drugs and the war on guns, two things that are neither manufactured or found organically in the communities that are over-policed in these wars on these things. Very, very interesting <laughs> fact uh, there. But we have a caller on the line, Tammy. Hi, Tammy. Tell us what's on your mind. Yes, hi. Um, I, remember, I do remember that case. However... I think it's a shame what Baltimore have done to those kids. I used to work in an attorney's office in, in Baltimore City. And the parents, if a lot of them was on drugs, some of them were on drugs or alcohol, those kids have no one else to, to look after them. But back to what I was about to say originally, 
You know, even when I used to catch the um, train down into Baltimore, and I used to talk to a lot of young people out there, you all have to be very careful who you put in this office because a lot of them do not have your interest at heart. And one man said, ma'am, your wife, I keep telling my mother, stop voting for these Democrats because the only thing they're going to do is set you, set you back. And I say yes because that's when Elijah Cummings was was um yeah, Elijah Cummings was living there. And I used to be very upset at the way how these kids furthermore I was upset when they gave away the uh, public school system. That's one thing. But um I was also upset because they had no one else to turn to because these same daggone people they voted in turned their backs against them. Away from They didn't want to trust the Republican because the grandmother said, well, if we continue to vote for a Democrat, they'll help us out. And they haven't done anything for them. That's, you know, it's a shame the way the things have gone, you know, in Baltimore. But I try to keep them, yeah, in prayer. But a lot of people, yep, don't, do not understand. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And matter of fact, Someone just told me this year that um, they put on the ballot that the um, city council can do no more than three years. They got to go. Now, that should have been the first thing to get rid of the city council. And I didn't know those people were sitting on that daggone city council that long. Yeah, certainly, certainly a lot to consider in Baltimore. Thanks so much, Tammy, for your call. Hope to hear from you again soon. You know, Kim, I think Tammy raises a a really important issue as we're talking about um, the 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 economic situation facing so many um, Baltimore youth, and the fact is that it's not just an economic situation. It is a political situation. It's a manufactured political situation that uh, um, uh, 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 imposes poverty on people by not providing people decent jobs and, and, and not doing this for decades. We're not talking about years. We're talking about decades by eviscerating the industrial base so that good working class jobs Uh, where people were able to go and work at the plant or work at a mill somewhere, you know, or work at a steel mill and make enough money to raise their families on, buy a home on, you know, support uh, themselves and and were able to feed, clothe, and house themselves on one decent paying uh, a blue-collar job, that's gone. And then the city doesn't provide anything in place that helps people to continue to support themselves. And then at the same time, you have the influx of, you know, uh, uh, the, the prevalence of alcohol and other kinds of substances. Despair sets in when people can't take care of themselves and their families anymore. That happens to everybody. We see the same thing happening with the opioid crisis in the Rust Belt uh, in West Virginia, where all of the steel jobs have gone. This is the same kind of thing that's happened in places like Baltimore. But it's interesting, Kim, that, you know, there has not been, and we've talked about this so many times in so many different contexts, but it is interesting that, we have not seen as much sympathy for 
uh, as as Tammy pointed out, the parents of these kids who are suffering from the political decisions that these politicians have made, Democrat and Republican, to uh, uh, rip away the the foundation of society from under them and then tell them sink or swim and watch them sink. There's been very little compassion for the parents of the black kids in Baltimore, in Washington, D.C., in Detroit, you know, in New Orleans, as opposed to, you know, the parents who are, are, are subjected to the opioid epidemic that are in that crisis for the exact same reasons. There's a lot more sympathy for those folks and their struggling parents than there are for these kids in Baltimore and their parents. And, and what do you make of that? How do you even deal with that, Kim, as you continue to see another generation, another cycle of politicians, Democrat or otherwise, who are not going to do anything different? Well, I definitely appreciate Tammy's call, and she made some excellent points. And to your question, Jackie, about, for example, the opioid crisis, Baltimore City has been experiencing an opioid crisis since at least the 80s, definitely since the 90s. If you're familiar with the East Coast, especially this mid-Atlantic region, everybody knows. Like, if, you, if you're looking for the heroin, the heroin, it's in Baltimore. If you was looking for crack, crack was in D.C., right? But Baltimore has been known for heroin use um, for many, many decades now, and there was nothing there for the people who were experiencing this substance abuse crisis. There were no services there. The only thing that they got was their children taken from them and have them have their addiction criminalized and the survival behaviors that they may have utilized in order simply to live, be it, you know, petty theft or shoplifting or sex work, you know, all of those were criminalized as well. So people couldn't even do what they could do for themselves in order to survive without having to face criminal penalties and potentially be locked up for it. Um, and, and this has been an ongoing thing. The, this is the solution. The police are the solution. The jails are the solution. There has never been a, a, a comprehensive strategy to attack the issues surrounding poverty, surrounding substance abuse, and the ways to which to elevate people out of these conditions. And I'm also glad that Tammy brought up uh, the Baltimore City Council and the, the late Elijah Cummings, because, you know, huh, the, the, these are the flaws of representational politics. Just because you have a, a black city council or majority black city council or your congressperson is black, your mayor is black, your president can be black. What does that actually do to change the, 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 the conditions of the multi-generational oppressions, economic oppression, exploitation, over-policing, what does that do to change any of that? And, and the answer is nothing. <laughs> okay, We can look at Baltimore as a perfect case study of multi-generation Black Democratic leadership being elected to the city time and time again, and nothing in Baltimore fundamentally changes. Because at the end of the day, the Black political class and the black bourgeoisie class that basically advance and call the shots of the direction in which the city will go. They have such contempt and such scorn and such disdain for poor Baltimoreans, for people who, again, have been dealing with substance abuse in the form of alcohol or drugs 
for multi-generations. And the solution, as, as coming out of the uh, state's attorney-elect there, Ivan Bates, is we're going to resume prosecutions of low-level crimes. Nobody ever wants to get to the heart of the issue. And part of it has to start at the schools and with the parents, as Tammy so astutely said, because she's right. These kids don't have a lot of people. They don't have anybody. Either their their families are, are dealing with substance abuse or they're in and out of the system or a variety of reasons that their their, their familial structure is is not intact for all kinds of reasons, but poverty and capitalism remain the root of it. But um, there, there's, no, there, there's no political will for this. And when Tammy talked about um, the city council term limits being on the ballot, which passed, which is fantastic, there was another meeting, I think just two nights ago in Baltimore City, where uh, residents came out to oppose the Baltimore City Council approving lifetime pensions for themselves. If they served a term of X amount of years, they were approving for themselves lifetime pensions. And it's still a slap in the face to people who live and work in Baltimore to see these elected officials reward themselves to pass policies that benefit themselves instead of the communities that they are supposed to serve. So the political leadership or rather the political misleadership in Baltimore is absolutely one of the foundational problems that the city continues to face. You know what, before we uh, go to the next break, I got to ask you about uh, the prospects now that there is a new uh, state's attorney. What are the prospects of Keith Davis Jr. finally being uh, freed and left alone by the Baltimore state's attorney's office. So Ivan Bates was asked about this on the campaign trail, and he did not specify whether or not that his office would continue to move forward with the prosecution of Keith Davis Jr., who is, I believe, is Keith has been prosecuted so many times, I lose count. It's, it's, it's either the fifth or sixth time um, that that Keith will be facing charges, not for the original murder that he was charged with in his last court appearance. The last um, ruling surrounding that was the conviction was overturned. And so Marilyn Mosby instead decided to charge him in connection with an assault that allegedly happened while Keith was locked up. That is the latest set of charges that he is facing. Um, to be honest, I, I, in, in my opinion, Ivan Bates should drop this case because it is clearly a case of vindictiveness. In a previous hearing, um, motions hearing pertaining to the, 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 the next trial of Keith Davis Jr., a judge even ruled that, um, that there was an element of vindictiveness coming from the prosecution pertaining to this case, pertaining to Keith and pertaining to his supporters. Right. In fact, Marilyn Mosey was trying to get the case removed from Baltimore City and had it and to have it tried in Baltimore County or in one of the other surrounding counties. And that was denied. So I'm hoping that that Ivan Bates will drop these charges against Keith Davis Jr. They need to try to find uh, the person who did kill security guard Kevin Jones, because the evidence does not suggest and five previous trials do not suggest that Keith is responsible uh, for that man's death. So I I I'm I'm trying to be optimistic here, Jackie. But you know the the track 
record of, of the black bougies d- does not give me a lot of confidence. <laughs> I know how much these people need to adhere to the rule of law. And I and I kind of expect Ivan Bates to, to still go forward with that. But if it was smart, he'd drop it. Yeah. Ricky Ryan in the chat. Shout out to all of you in the by any means necessary chat. Ricky Ryan in the chat says it's a matter of when he'll drop the case, not a matter of will they. And, you know, I, I hope she's right. And so hopefully this will be the one time uh, the ba- the black bourgeois class uh, does something right when they have a little bit of power. But we're going to move to another break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. That's where I am. It's still Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I'm Jackie Lukman, and I continue to be joined by Kim Brown, and I can't Let this hour end, Kim, without dishing on the Mosby's and their very enjoyable to watch legal issues. I got to tell you, I really am enjoying watching these folks have their comeuppance because, excuse me, they have indeed acted uh, as typically black bourgeois, petted bourgeois, whatever you want to call them, black bougie. That's what they have been in Maryland politics, have done nothing good for the people, absolutely useless. And in the case of Marilyn Mosby in particular, um, use the office of the prosecutor to basically enrich herself. She's now under indictment in federal court on charges of perjury and mortgage fraud. Prosecutors allege that Mosby lied about Uh, suffering a coronavirus-related financial setback in order to withdraw $90,000 from her city retirement account in 2020, which, you know, I just, I I, I also think that some of this is kind of, of petty, but I also feel like, Kim, it is the people who really hold the power letting folks like the Mosby's know that, They are there for the people who actually have the real power for their use. They can't do what those folks who have the real power do. So I I feel like, you know, I don't think you should be prosecuted for um, taking money from your own retirement account. I think that's ridiculous. However, if you're going to break the rules and do that and think you can get away with doing that because you are. Uh, part of the in crowd, I really do think this is an example of uh, the people who are really a part of the power elite in Baltimore letting the Mosby's know, no, no, you're not one of us. Um, you marched to our orders and you stepped out of line this time. But that that's just me looking on the outside looking in. What is what's your assessment of Mosby's legal challenges and, uh, you know, her her and her husband's ongoing uh, legal issues? So the Mosby's are the latest 
in a long series of higher ranking black politicians in Baltimore City that have been targeted with uh, prosecutions for relatively petty stuff. I mean, Jackie, you're not wrong. Does she, who, who does she steal money from? Nobody. She took money from herself. And, and she's being penalized for that. And again, I say this to somebody that I'm not a fan of Marilyn Mosby at all. Okay, but I saw what happened with um, with uh, both Sheila Dixon, former mayor of Baltimore, who was drummed out of office and prosecuted for allegedly taking uh, gift cards um, that were intended for poor people. Um, the other previous mayor, I'm sorry, her name escapes me. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Pew? Yes, thank you so much. Catherine Pew, who actually had to serve a federal prison sentence in connection with um, her publishing of, of something called Healthy Holly, which was a, a, a children's book that she wrote. But she got money from a university medical system that she didn't claim. And it was some other higgy hagger pertaining to that. Catherine Pugh was the only one to go down in, in that alleged controversy. There were other people involved, white people involved, who didn't get in any trouble whatsoever. So for Marilyn Mosby to be targeted in this way for something that is, I think, I agree, is demonstrably petty, is, like you said, a reinforcement that, you know, you don't play in the same game as these as these true elites do, right? You, you are still on that. You in the G League. You're not already, you're not in the NBA here, Maryland. <laughs> so, but but I think that they deserve this reckoning because at the end of the day, Baltimore City residents deserve quality representation. They don't need people that are going to be trying to pull little little stunts, little come up in stunts in the ways that the Mosby's did. Uh, the the ethics investigation that Nick Mosby finds himself in pertains to the legal fund that the Mosby's created for themselves dealing with some of these, um, these, these legal headaches that they have, which when they started it, and let me be clear, they created like a GoFundMe <laughs> for, for, for their legal fund. These two sitting elected officials were trying to raise outside money um, in, for their defense, which to me also looked ethically weird. I didn't think that that was an appropriate thing for the sitting city council president and the sitting uh, state attorney uh, for the, for Baltimore to be doing. So he has to face um, an ethics commission for these allegations. I think he was able to get a postponement because Mr. Mosby said that he didn't have time to find counsel. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say to Nick. Um, so I, I don't know. Mar uh, Marilyn Mosby is, is not, is, I don't think is a good representation for the city and the city needs to move forward because continuing to prosecute people for small things or even for big things. When we talk about the possession and, and selling of drugs, we can agree that heroin and fentanyl are scourges in our community. But again, uh, circling back to the origins of the heroin, to the origins of the fentanyl, to who really actually profits and benefits by the selling of these drugs, right? It's not the people that are trying to scrape together rent money or scrape together food money. No, it is people further up the chain that are ultimately profiting off of uh, the, 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 the culture of selling and manufacturing and arresting and incarcerating people for drugs. So when it comes to Marilyn Mosby and Nick Mosby, I, I too find a bit of a entertainment value in it because, you know, they are my class enemies and I don't like to see them win. <laughs> <laughs> so 
We we will see, but I don't think Marilyn Mosby should go to jail behind this. Um, I hope she does not go to jail. I don't like to see people go to jail, even if I really don't like them. And I didn't like to see Catherine Pugh go to jail or Sheila Dixon go to jail, for that matter. So I, I think it sets a it continues on a bad precedent of targeting elected black officials, particularly black women, for petty things, while the white powerful people who really call shots in Baltimore City continue business as usual. Yeah. And speaking of the white, powerful people who continue to call the shots, you know, Kim, your president, Joseph Biden, has uh, <laughs> is set to ask Congress for even more money for Ukraine uh, and secondarily, but not really secondarily, but like somewhere 15th to 16th down on the list for COVID and disaster recovery. The Biden administration is asking Congress to include additional funding in the must-pass government package for what it uh, said are three critical funding needs, um, continued support for the people of Ukraine. And it's great how he's framing it as that instead of, all this money going to give Ukraine more weapons to keep this war against Russia going. Um, COVID-19 response and natural disaster recovery. The $37.7 billion Ukraine request is spread across four U.S. government departments, um, which would include $21.7 billion for the Department of Defense, uh, $14.5 billion for the State Department, for direct uh, (laughs) budget support to the Ukraine, $626 million for the Department of Energy for nuclear support to Ukraine, and and $900 million for the Department of Health and Human Services to provide standard assistance, health care, and support services for Ukrainian parolees. What in the world? (sighs) Oh. Then it's just $10 billion, as opposed to the $21.7 billion for uh, weaponry and, and war and all of its permutations, just $10 billion, $10 billion for COVID-19 funding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I I think the priorities of the administration are pretty clear in the distribution of this 30.7 billion request um, for more money for mostly Ukraine. But in the wake of the midterms and the fact that the House is now narrowly controlled by the GOP, and it's weird, we're in this weird upside down, crazy town kind of political moment where members of the GOP are questioning why we're sending Ukraine all this money for war. I guess the question now is, does this spending bill get passed? Oh, I think they'll pass it. Hmm. Trying to pass it in the lame duck, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Girl, when, when, when do Democrats turn down military spending? I'll wait. I'll wait. <laughs> they don't. And I'm blown away by that number, Jackie. $37.5 billion with a B additionally to Ukraine. Wow, the people of Jackson, Mississippi, need only $2 billion to, to redo their, their water treatment facility and to replace their, their water infrastructure. Only $2 billion for Jackson. 
but 37 oh, needed for Jackson rather, but somehow, no, we don't, we don't, we don't ever have the money for that. We don't have money for that. We have money. However, 37 and a half billion. And that's on top of, I'm guessing Jack, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. It, it, we've at least sent 30 billion to Ukraine at least already. <laughs> I'm asking you. I, I just, I'm looking at this list of, of allocations of the money that's going to Ukraine. And I think the thing that, a couple of things stick out to me that they, because and they stick out to me, Kim, because they're things we don't have in this country. Fourteen point five billion dollars for the State Department for direct budget support to Ukraine, critical wartime investment, security assistance to strengthen global food security and for humanitarian assistance. We don't have food security in this country. In this country, people are going hungry right now. Millions of people are going hungry right now, including children. But Ukraine is getting a lot of money for food security assistance. Um, And then this other thing, $900 million for the Department of Health and Human Services. And this is a direct quote from uh, from the White House press uh, release to provide standard assistance, health care and support services to Ukrainian parolees. What? Yeah, see? See, I'm not the only one. I don't, we, in this country, you were just talking about, Kim, how we don't want anybody to go to jail because we know what jail does, the complete dismantling of not only the life of the person who is incarcerated, but also the life of their family members and, and what that entire system does to entire communities. And we don't have support systems in this country to provide health care and support and access and all of these things for parolees in this country. But the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is getting $900 million to provide standard assistance, health care and support services to parolees in another country, I don't understand, number one, how that's legal. Number two, how are there not people flooding the streets mad as hell, screaming at the top of their lungs for that money to come our way instead of to Ukraine's way? Kim, stop. I have to stop talking before I start cussing. Well, so I, well, I think there's a couple of things. So I think that Ukrainian propaganda, pro-Ukrainian, let's support Ukraine propaganda was really effective here in the United States. And the reason why people aren't in the streets over that $900 million going to Ukrainian parolees is because, Jackie, those are white parolees. Come on now, you know, help. (laughs) white people need help out here to the tune of almost a billion dollars. These white foreigners, they need some help. They need a little bit of help. They need a hand out, hand up. And, it, and it's amazing to me that, you know, uh, uh, America in general, as, as a whole, does not seem to tire of another endless war, right? No, no sooner did we wrap up things in Afghanistan in a truly horrific, terrible, abhorrent way in which the, 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 the life of Afghani people has not fundamentally improved despite $2 trillion plus being spent over there in their country, mostly on military engagements and the U.S. destroying their country and, you know, fundamentally um, uh, dis- uh, uh, upsetting the state of their society. You know, there, there's nothing to show for that, except 
for the fact that uh, BAE Systems and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin continue to line their pockets, and that same system just continues, except in a different geographical location. So, of course, America has endless billions to pour into this war to, to, to make sure that the, the military-industrial complex keeps, keeps puttering along. And as Americans, you know, this country, we have just come to accept that, that this country will spend more abroad than it will even on its own citizenry. But you bring up a really interesting point, Jackie, when it comes to the GOP taking control of the House. And when I heard Marjorie Taylor Greene say very clearly that she doesn't want one more dime spent in Ukraine, I said, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither, Marjorie. Ooh. And and what's also interesting, I talked about this on my show briefly, but Jackie, let's imagine horrifically that Donald Trump gets reelected. Girl, guess who is stopping the war in Ukraine? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Never hear the end of it. It would literally be like the one and only thing he does that is remotely human and remotely right, because, you know, everything would be just a piling heap of ashes. But this is why we always come back to this issue on this show. And that is we must organize, organize, organize. And we have got to organize like our lives depend on it, people, because they absolutely do. Gone must be the days where we are out organized by the right wing in this country, because that is really what has happened. They've taken the playbook of the left, of the labor movements, of the civil rights struggles, and they've used it And they brought us here. But we can take that back. We have to do that now. And the only way we can do it is to organize. But we're out of time for the show today. I want to thank Kim Brown so much for joining me. We'll be right, not right back, but we'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show on the eve of Thanksgiving. Uh, I think we will have a uh, retrospective on all of the, or at least a lot of the uh, observations of harvest festivals. Everybody around the world does not celebrate Thanksgiving. And we'll actually hopefully talk to our friend Jay Winter Nightwalk, uh, Nightwolf about the tradition of Thanksgiving and what we can do otherwise rather than observe that lie. But You'll have to stay tuned tomorrow to hear all of that and more on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Until then, peace. By Any Means Necessary.